I'm going to start with a dream, and this is all in the context of why we've been in Ephesians chapter 6 studying how to be gird and ready for the day of battle. And, and, and my mom is here. She can attest it. When my brother and I were very young, we were always preparing for battle. We always had forts in the woods, and we were always preparing for battles that never came. But we were ready, you know? So I'm sort of geared towards that in my, my makeup. By the way, I believe that every man is supposed to be a warrior. There, God has put in every man a warrior spirit, and, and the, the Spirit of God wants to develop that, you know. But that being said, um, I had a dream. Some of you remember when Bishop Rubin was here back in the summer that I shared when Bishop Rubin was, before he spoke, that I had had a dream. And the dream shook me up, and the dream still shakes me up. But the dream was basically this. Um, I and some other people were walking into a skyscraper. It was a big glass building. Everything was glass. It was several stories high. We were up maybe seven or eight stories. I'm not sure exactly how far. But you could see right through this building. And I was just thinking, you know, this is the spoils of war. I mean, like, I don't know how I knew that, but there had been a battle. There had been a huge battle and there had been a huge victory, and very costly, but we had won. And the, the, the spoils of war was this building, and I was just walking through it thinking, you know, what it would be like to set up my secret place in one of these rooms, but then no one is secret because you can see through the whole thing. But as I was just thinking and envisioning moving into this building and taking possession of it, there walked in a warrior, and we all knew him by fame. This warrior uh, was a part of the final battle, the final victory that, that killed this beast. And this beast was like a hydra. It was many-headed. And, uh, and, and as soon as we saw him, we, all of our attention just turned right to him. And we were awestricken by his amazing thing that he had done, that God had done through him. And he was so humble, and he, right away he said, oh no, he said, this was many hands. Many, many people fought this battle. And he said the final straw, the final victory came when five or more men joined him, and they, they, each one slew a head. Everyone severed a head from this beast. And quite frankly, this this man was so humble in the presence of God that he sort of wondered if perhaps somehow that beast could rise up again. So he was not gloating. He was not, he was just a humble man. And I turned and I looked at Bishop Rubin and I said, I feel like you're one of those guys, you know. But in my dream, as this thing unfolded and as it came to a close, I remember saying to myself, looking at this warrior, we're not ready. We're not ready. By that I mean cornerstone. By that I mean myself. By that I mean the church at large, particularly in America, is not ready to face that kind of battle. We don't have the tools. And then the Lord began to convict me, and that's why we're on this journey of studying how it is that you put on armor so you can make your stand, okay? Okay.
So what I was going to do this week was I was going to talk about how to dislodge those things that are immovable. Part of it has to do with this song. Part of it has to do with something God was already speaking to my heart. So I would have taken you. You can turn those off now. Thanks. Just put the first slide up if you would. Thank you. So um, what I would have done next then from going from Ephesians chapter 6, then secondly, I would have taken you to Matthew 17. And there we would have read the story about how Jesus came down out of the Mount of Transfiguration. Three of his disciples got to see him in his resplendent glory. They saw the glory of God shining through the face of Jesus. And they were just absolutely awe-stricken by it. And Peter starts saying crazy things and wanting to do crazy things. And the Lord says, be quiet. Don't share this with anybody until after I've resurrected. And I know that Peter had to be grumbling going down the mountainside, you know, saying, it was so awesome. And Andrew wasn't here. I want I to show him. I want to tell him. Jesus says, no, wait until after the resurrection. I think that went right over their head. The very thing that happens next then is that Jesus comes up to a scene, and let's just say it's disciples, but let's say the disciples represents the church. And on this scene, what they found or what came up, uh, what, what occurred to them is that there was an argument going on. And Jesus steps in the middle of the argument, which is a wonderful, beautiful picture. Steps right in the middle of the argument. And as he does, he asks what is going on. And a very distraught man says, my son is very sick. He's uh, epileptic. He has seizures. And, but then he's also tormented. And then, you know, sometimes he throws himself in the fire. He becomes self-harming. He tries to commit suicide. Oh, gosh, that's a deep subject. You know, mental health is mental health, and physical health is physical health. They both need healing, but sometimes mental health and physical health uh, open you up for some kind of demonic thing, and so then there can be that, you know. So please don't try to cast a demon out of someone who's having a seizure if it's just a mental health issue, right? Pray for healing. Whatever, yeah. You don't know. So... Jesus steps into the middle of that, and he just very comfortably and very easily dispels the immovable. Just camp on that for a minute. Jesus didn't have to go and run to his secret place and spend some time with God. He didn't have to go fast. He didn't have to go. He didn't have to call for the elders. He didn't have to anoint with oil. He just said, you know, the exchange and the demon left and the boy was cured in the moment. So beautiful, so elegant, so wonderful, so needed, right? Okay. Then the disciples say, oh, Jesus, why couldn't we do it? And then he rebukes them. He goes into this perverse and faithless generation thing. I'm thinking if I was Peter and the rest of them, I'd say, you talking to them or to us, you know? And we probably don't realize that that is actually the same words that Moses had used just as he is saying goodbye 
to Israel. His assignment was over. And he sings this song and he prophesies. And as he prophesies in Deuteronomy chapter 32, he says, but you've been a faithless and perverse generation and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know. So Jesus just shared like it was an intimate moment, but it was like the bigger picture. But it was, it was very, that was a prophetic word. He was not just upset with the disciples. He was making a statement. And then, then the part that the disciples needed to hear is that um, it's because of your unbelief. If you had faith, even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be removed, and it would be removed. Which is his way of saying you didn't even have faith the size of a seed of mustard which is very small. You didn't even have that much faith. But if you did, mount, not just boulders, mountains can be moved. It's beautiful. I'm going to ask you a question. What needs to move in your life? What needs to move? Then I'm going to ask you to take a journey with me to Isaiah chapter 6. I've been in this uh, chapter all week. So uh, Isaiah, there's five chapters of preparation and uh, an accounting of where Israel was at and what Israel didn't know. And Isaiah didn't know it. He prophesied it, but he didn't know it. He said, there is a battle that is coming that you are not prepared for. And he begins to share, share the heart of God to Israel. And Israel doesn't know that in a few short years, they were going to be captured by the Babylonians. Their temple would be torn down. Their city would be burned. And they would be led away into captivity. And they would be there a while. That's the backstory. But in Isaiah 6, and if you can follow along with me, I'm going to start with verse number 1. A national tragedy had hurt, happened. King Uzziah, who was a beautiful man and a wonderful king, except he had one mistake. He had one mistake. He decided one day he was going to go into the temple and he was going to offer incense. And he's not a priest. And the high priest stopped him and rebuked him and cancer broke out on his head. He became filled with leprosy. And he died a leper. But other than that, he was a good king. All right. He's the only king that Isaiah ever knew. So if you can imagine growing up and a national leader who's a hero is killed or dies, what kind of vacuum that leaves. So that's why it says in verse number one, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, kind of like over the Ark of the Covenant, you know? Each one having six wings. 
With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. Moms, what could you do with six wings? And one cried to another, so there has to be two of them at least. Two seraphim. Actually, seraph would be one. Seraphim is plural. So one cried to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled or full of his glory. Now, these people are about to face a battle and they don't know that the earth is full of the glory of God. They can't see that. They don't know that God is present among them. They can't see that. But right now, Isaiah is seeing it. And the posts of the door were shaken, which is the place where the blood had been applied at the Passover, by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. And he said, Woe, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. I think that the unclean lips part is what the thousand voice, thousand prophetic voices, I think that's what that's about, is that we have unclean lips. We don't know how unclean they are because we live in the midst of other people with unclean lips, and a lot of times we're just saying what they're saying. Woe is me, for I'm undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand in his hand, a live or a burning coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lip. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Whatever happened there, I can guarantee you based on other scripture was connected to the cross of Jesus Christ because in the old covenant, there was only covering, not forgiveness, not removal of sin. But since Jesus Christ has paid the price, he's paid the price for your sin and my sin, you and I as believers are cleansed from iniquity. What can take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It doesn't matter how far you've run. It doesn't matter what you've done or how cursed you have cursed. It doesn't matter any of those things. If you look to the Lord Jesus Christ, Ask for forgiveness. He'll cleanse you. From the top of your head to the sole of your feet, he'll, he'll cleanse you so deeply that now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, can move inside you. That's how clean when we put our faith in Christ. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? 
there's a commissioning going to happen here. Isaiah said then, then uh, you know, I, I didn't know what I was doing, but in the moment I just said, here am I, send me. By the way, I like that word order, here am I. He surrendered. Here am I, send me. And he said, um, the Lord said, go and tell this people. Now, I want you to think about Israel's situation. And if you see any parallel to our country and our cities, that be upon you. But, you know, there's a concern I have for our cities and for our country, for our churches, for our people. This is what, this is his commission. This is what Isaiah's commissioned with. He's supposed to go, and you would say, you would think that he would say, I want you guys to repent. I want you to turn back to God. I want you to turn your lives over to the Lord. I want you to, you know, do some deep uh, introspection here. But here's what he says. This is the word. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. Shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Verse 11 then I said, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant. The houses are without a man, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it, and I will return for consuming as the terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down so the holy seed shall be its stump and lest you you know become fearful beyond measure let me just remind you that what he is explaining is what Jesus understood when his disciples came to him and said, why do you speak in parables? Why, why don't you just say it plain? Make it clear. Make it plain to them. Why do you speak in parables? And, and the people have to figure out what you're trying to say. And he quotes Isaiah 6. And he said, because in seeing they will not see, and in hearing they will not hear, and because in understanding they will not understand which is his way of saying there is a veil that is over the eyes of God's chosen people. And Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 11. And he says to the Gentile believers, he said, you need to honor the stump from which you were grafted in because that root is holy. But I want you to know a great mystery, and that is for a season, a veil has come over the Jewish heart. And he cannot see Messiah. And the only way that the veil is taken away is if he looks to Jesus. So here's my dilemma. Like if, if God has allowed or if God has done something 
can it be undone? Like if there's a veil and you just need to know that the veil is over the heart, can it be undone? I don't think it gets any more unmovable than that. And I take great courage in several verses and several stories in the Bible, but one of them is when Abraham has just fully been commissioned by God. The miracle is just underway and beginning to happen. And he says to Abraham, should I hide from you what I'm about to do in Sodom and Gomorrah? Seeing that you shall be a mighty prince. And you have seed like the sand of the seashore and the stars in the sky. Should I hide from you what I'm about to do in Sodom and Gomorrah? And Abraham had two functioning brain cells, at least. And he said, oh, God, I've got people who live there. For 50 righteous, would you spare the city? And God says, yeah, for 50. And they go, for 50 minus 5. And the bargaining goes on. But here what you see is Abraham interceding for a people. And they don't realize it. But the judgment of God is, is imminent. It's going to fall on them any minute. And this righteous man who believes God is asking God to change his mind. I wonder this morning two things as we close. First thing is. Is there something that seems immovable in your life and it needs to move? Would you please try again? Come, let's present ourselves to the Lord. Let's pray together and let's see the immovable move. Two, would you pray for our city? Would you pray for our nation? The swamp is deeper than you think. And it's not just in D.C., Would you pray with me for people who have eyes, but they don't see? They have ears, but they don't hear. They have hearts that they don't understand. And the wrath of God is stored up above them, and they don't even know it. One particular book opens with a statement written many years ago now. The people in our country are lost. And then in the 30th anniversary, he wrote a new foreword in the book. And he said, now they're not only lost, but they're broken. They're lost and they're broken. What is immovable in your life? Let's pray together. Let's pray together. Now, just add this and then I'm done. Don't go to fasting and prayer first. Reestablish your secret place. Go in there. Jesus promised if you close the door in your secret place, that God will meet you there. If I told all of you that at 3 o'clock this afternoon, if you go into your bedroom, shut the door, God would meet with you, I bet everyone would do it. But let me tell you something. Take your Bible. He'll meet with you every time you go in that room and shut the door. He'll meet with you every time.